to Exodus chapter 15. Um, sort of in the scope of the itinerant ministry that I do, I was in Rochester, actually in Metro Rochester. I was in uh, last, uh, last Sunday morning, I was in Webster, New York, which is up uh, on the shores of Lake Ontario. And on my way home near Corning, New York, cruising along at about 75 miles an hour. Well, actually, the speed limit was 65, and so I was employing the nine-mile-an-hour rule, grace, unwritten but understood by so many. And uh, anyway, I got broadsided by a massive deer. And was that for me or for the deer? Uh, Both, okay. Um, so the deer died, I didn't, but, um, I got smacked around pretty good. And so that's what this little stool is here for this morning. Um, I have some chronic back issues and, and I did a little bit more damage. So if I climb up onto this, you'll understand why, uh, but I prefer to stand while I teach. Okay. So we're, we're going to begin in just a moment, but I would be amiss. I would be remiss, remiss, not to acknowledge a couple things that have happened in our culture within the last uh, 48 hours. First of all, uh, there was the shooting of Christina Grimmie, uh, well-known as a music artist, kind of most well-known because she was a contestant on The Voice. But what a lot of people didn't know about her until uh, just in the last 24 hours or so is that Christina Grimmie was also a real committed believer. And uh, she was uh, senselessly gunned down after her concert on Friday night. And uh, she's now in heaven. And then early this morning in Orlando, Florida, uh, a man went into uh, a nightclub, a particular kind of nightclub, USA Today has now, just in the last few minutes, reported 50 dead, 53 uh, injured from gunshot wound. And uh, they, preliminarily, they have every reason to believe that uh, this was uh, domestic terrorism uh, by uh, a Muslim. And so here's what you need to understand about that. In the next... Over the next few days, we're going to hear a lot of conversation about guns and et cetera, et cetera. And we've we've become so conditioned to that that we almost tune it out. Uh, but, But here's the issue. This is evil. This is evil. This is demonic. No no matter what they conclude about this 27-year-old man who traveled from another part of Florida to Orlando, specifically to take Christina Grimmie's life. No matter what they determined about his mental state, whether they determined that he was mentally ill or should have been on medication or whatever, that's demonic. And this Muslim, uh, no matter what they say about... First of all, you need to understand that um, Islam is is not a grace religion. Uh, in other words, it, it's, it's your works that prove your worthiness. And this individual, as a Muslim, 
would have taken issue and does take issue with many uh, things that happen in our culture. And gender confusion and homosexuality and all that's connected to it, to it is, is an affront to a Muslim. And so this individual who opened fire and took 50 lives and wounded 53 others, in his mind, he was serving Allah, he died in jihad, and he was assured of paradise. Unfortunately, one nanosecond after he departed mortality and entered eternity, he realized that he had believed a lie. But again, no matter what that's attributed to, you need to understand that was demonic. He was come not but to steal, kill, and destroy is behind these continued violent acts globally. You need to understand that our culture is fascinated by evil as long as it's on the movie screen. As long as it's, uh, we, you know, we view it on our computer. But let someone dare to mention that this was in fact demonic and he'll be immediately shouted down. Now, in Guatemala, where Pastor Tim is now, if anything like this were to happen in that culture, the first thought would be that that was demonic activity because in that culture, they recognize it. Uh, they fear it. Uh, m- many people try to placate it through sacrifice, but they recognize the reality of, of demons and demonic activity. So uh, we need to pray for our country. We need a spiritual awakening. And actually, that's what initially I was going to come and speak to you about. But because we're having communion this morning, we're going to look at something that's going to prepare us uh, for that. One more thing. Uh, The psalmist wrote, clap your hands, all ye people, shout unto God in a voice of triumph. Now, it's probably something that that you're you're just, again, accustomed to. Uh, But in our culture, we, we applaud politely to say, oh, you know, we appreciate that. Or sometimes uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll clap together in unison, usually if it's associated with music of some sort or another, and it shows in a very demonstrative way how it is true, how the stereotype is true that most white people don't have rhythm. <laughs> a few do. But, but what, you, what you need to understand, our sister right over here, our sister right over here, we were worshiping this morning, In other cultures for millennia and still today, in other cultures, uh, clapping in unison is is a way to demonstrate unity of thought, unity of purpose. An army, before they would go into battle, would often clap together in unison. That's why we see athletic teams do it today. They're getting ready to go to battle and they, they, they clap together in unison. But... Also, in cultures still today that dates back to antiquity, when someone would clap as she claps uh, to, to sort of uh, emphasize, it's a symbol of victory. So when the psalmist wrote, clap your hands, all ye people, shout unto God with a voice of triumph, it was associated with victory. 
And of course, we have victory in Jesus. So just keep that in mind when you politely applaud or when you clap along. Just keep in mind that clapping uh, typically and historically is just to identify uh, together and also it's, it's a way to, uh, to declare victory. All right? Okay, well, that's it now. Uh, see ya. <laughs> I ate a precious time. I didn't want to, but I just thought I'd wanted to share that with you this morning. Um, let, let's, let's pray. Can we pray now just for those things that we mentioned? Um, Randy, would you pray for that? And then after I, get, after I read the text, I'll pray for our Bible study. Would you pray? Yes. This world. Yes. And Lord, we pray, Father, that more and more of those who believe in you, Lord, would see the time quickly approaching. Yes. Where you will return. Yes, Lord. Lord, let us use our time wisely for you. Lord, we pray for the families that have lost loved ones. We, we pray, Lord, that uh, Lord, they would find their comfort in you and you only. And Lord, we ask your, your blessing. Mm-hmm. Lord, we give you this time and we thank you for Pastor Jim being here. Yes. And Lord, may you bless our time of study. Yes, in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 15. And we'll read our text beginning in verse 22. Exodus 15. Genesis, Exodus. If you're not sure, close your Bible. Open it to the right. Uh, Exodus is the second book in. Exodus chapter 15. Reading verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. And they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he, Moses, cried unto the Lord. And the Lord showed Moses a tree, which when he had cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he, that should be a capital H for the Lord, there he made for them a statute and an ordinance. And there he, again, that's a reference to the Lord, He proved them and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am Yehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for this opportunity to look into your word this morning. And again, uh, Lord, what a glorious time it is to be able to conclude our worship service this morning with an opportunity to come to the communion table, to remember you, to remember what you have done, what you are doing, and what you have promised to do. And Lord, this morning in this 
familiar Old Testament story, we see depicted in type that very work that you came to do, that you are still doing and that you will continue to do through your work of redemption. And so, Lord, please cause my words this morning to be yours. Words of direction and instruction, words of encouragement and hope. We also take a moment to pray for the team in Guatemala. Lord, bless them. Have your hand of protection upon them. Use them uh, to bring glory to your name and to bring many to a saving knowledge of you through faith in your son. For it's in the name of your son, our savior, Jesus, that we agree together in pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I'll begin by stating the obvious. Um, from time to time, each of us, even as Christians, we have a tendency to become bitter. And we find ourselves becoming embittered because of bitter circumstances or situations in our lives. Often it's because of the people that we're linked to or we're related to. Sometimes it's the people that are related to us. Sometimes it's our spouses. Sometimes it's our children. Sometimes it's members of our extended family. Sometimes it's a neighbor. Sometimes it's a co-worker. Sometimes it's even a brother or sister in Christ. Other times we find ourselves embittered because of the extenuating circumstances in our lives. For some, it's a broken heart stemming from a broken relationship, perhaps from a broken promise. To others, it's a broken home because a spouse has failed to keep his or her marriage vow of fidelity. Sometimes it's a broken life because of a sick or a broken body. And sometimes it's because we're flat broke. Um, Maybe being unemployed or underemployed. Maybe you've had a streak of bad breaks and they continue and and every one of them has a dollar sign associated to it and uh, your cash reserves are diminishing by the day. We can become embittered about those things. And bitterness becomes a blockade of sorts, hindering the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and, and through our lives. And interestingly, at times like that, We are often seeking to be filled when in truth, we need to be emptied. And the presence of bitterness in our lives is one of those times. Now, as we read a moment ago in our story, the children of Israel are dealing with bitterness literally. And it's affecting them Emotionally and particularly spiritually. And to really appreciate what's happening, we need to consider again the context uh, that frames this story. The children of Israel have just made their exodus out of Egypt. They've been there for more than 400 years. And several days prior to this event we read of here, They had passed through the Red Sea on dry land. And Pharaoh and the armies and the chariots of Egypt were in hot pursuit. 
And at that moment, the people cried out against Moses that he had drugged them out into the desert to die. And Moses cried out to the Lord. And the Lord paraphrased, said, Moses, this is not a time to pray. This is a time to act. Moses, what's in your hand? Spread forth your rod. Extend your rod, the rod of God. And, of course, we know that the waters of the Red Sea rolled back. Listen to what Moses said to the people. Verse 13, chapter 14. Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Uh, If you're a note taker, just jot here as a reference. We find this identical Hebrew phrase in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where again, God shows himself strong in behalf of the people uh, in, in the incident that concerns Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat and the armies of Israel, uh, where they go down into battle with the praise band leading the way. Uh, so you can just take note of that. That's Second Chronicles chapter 20. Fear not, stand still, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show unto you this day. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them no more forever. For the Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And you know what happens next. When the last of the children of Israel makes it through onto uh, the opposite side of the Red Sea, with the armies of Pharaoh now in the midst of the Red Sea, uh, God closes up the Red Sea uh, over the top of them, and uh, they drown, and their dead bodies are washed up on the shore, and it triggers a, a spontaneous worship service as Miriam and some of the other women in the congregation uh, begin to sing and to dance and, and to play their tambourines. Uh, the, the, the chorus of, of the little song they had just made up there was, uh, I have... I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. The Lord, my God, my strength, my song has now become my victory. So they had seen the Lord move powerfully and undeniably. And they were rejoicing in what the Lord had done. They had gained their freedom. They were now on, if you will, they were on the Canaan side. Uh, They were headed toward the promised land. And we join the story now several days later. How many uh, days later? We can't be certain. But we know for the last three days, prior to what we're reading here, they've been making their trek through the desert wilderness. And again, they're on their way to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. But before they get there, God has some work to do. Think about it with me. God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And now he had to get Egypt out of the children of Israel. You need to understand, the children of Israel loved Egypt. They hated the Egyptians. But they loved Egypt. And and that'll pop up later again in the narrative as you go through the book of Exodus. Where at another point, they begin to murmur and complain. Oh, you you don't love us, God. If you loved us, you'd give us meat. We're sick of manna, manna cotti, banana bread, banana pancakes. 
Things were so much better in Egypt. Yeah, that's right. Things were better in Egypt, right? Whips and chains and oppression. But isn't that how we are as, as humans, even as redeemed humans? We deal with a little bit of adversity and we question the love of God for us. Oh God, if you love me, if you love me, you'd really give me that thing I want. No, it's because he loves you that he withholds that thing from you. And so here we find the children of Israel and they're about to get pouty. They're on their way to Marah. Now, for you students, you know, because you're well taught here, um, you know that Marah, the Hebrew word uh, translated bitterness, uh, is an interesting word. It, you almost need uh, to, to, parse, to purse your lips to say that word bitterness. Don't we? You know, bitterness. It, it, it conjures up immediately the, the thought of sour grapes. And, and that provides the background for us. Verse 22 again. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days into the wilderness and they found no water. Now, there's a very vivid picture that's painted for us here. There, there are now perhaps two million people including women and children. We know there are over 600,000 fighting men. Those are men from 12 of the identified uh, tribes of Israel. And uh, these are men from the age of 20 uh, to 60. And they're all on active duty serving the Lord. There's more than 600,000 of them when you incorporate then the women and the children and the older men and uh, some of the uh, servants, uh, some of the Egyptians that identified uh, with the God of Israel and, and went out with them on their wilderness uh, trek. They're all now part of this group. So uh, it, it's a group that may number more than two million. And they're now three days uh, into their desert trek and they're thirsty and their animals are thirsty and they are not able to find any water. And so we have no trouble now imagining. They have parched lips. They have dry mouths. And they begin to murmur. That's it, that murmur. It's an interesting word, isn't it? It, it, it murmur. <laughs> murmur. Like, like a herd of cows. Murmur. 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 <laughs> They're murmuring. They're murmuring about their situation. They're murmuring about the extenuating circumstances. They're murmuring that, that Moses has dragged them out in the desert to die. But it wasn't Moses who was leading them. You remember? There's a pillar of, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It's the Lord who is leading them, not Moses. And so now we imagine the scene that, that likely has repeated itself a few times before now, where they've seen uh, in, uh, out off into the distance what appeared to them to be an oasis, only to discover that, that there was no water there. It was just a mirage. And so here again now, uh, they, they spy out what they believe to be an oasis in the distance. And, and right away, their thoughts turn to one of relief and, and refreshment. 
And so we have no trouble imagining some of them tearing off across the desert sand, reaching that water, cupping their hands. They spit it out. Because it's bitter. It's brackish. And remember again, it's not Moses that has led the people there. It's the Lord himself. And we read, we read it earlier in verse 25. The Lord is the one that's leading him, and he's led them to Marah in order to prove them. In other words, to reveal to them what was in their hearts. That they might learn to look to him to find a remedy. As it was for the children of Israel, so it is for you and me this morning. You see, God knows what's really in your heart. He knows what's really in your heart. Some of us try to deny what's in our heart. The Lord knows what's in our heart. And there are times that the Lord will bring us to these sorts of Mara situations in order to reveal to ourselves what's in our hearts. As I said earlier, he had taken the children of Israel out of Egypt and this was the first step along the way to begin taking Egypt out of the children of Israel. He wanted to reveal to them that which was in their heart. The Lord will bring us to Mara after Mara after Mara in our lives. And if not today, then maybe tomorrow. And he'll use the what? Come on. As if you've never heard an old man tell a corny joke. Come on. I mean, be like my granddaughters or my, all my grandchildren and, and just humor me. Say, oh, oh, Papa, that's so funny. And then roll their eyes like, whatever, Papa. Back to the serious point, though, Mara. The Lord will bring us to those places of Mara, and he'll employ people, places, things, circumstances, situations, events, And he'll employ those things to reveal to us what it is in our heart. Isn't that what Jesus said? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, uh, we live in a part of the country that uh, during the winter uh, we get snow and and, uh, then we get freeze and then we get thaw And then it refreezes and it thaws and it refreezes. And you know what happens to the asphalt around here, the roadways. They crack and the moisture gets underneath and then it refreezes. And the next thing you know, before too long, you got potholes. And and I don't know about how it is down here in in Metro Richmond. I can only tell you how it is in Metro D.C. uh, In the early spring and sometimes still during the winter months, if you've had extreme temperature swings... Well, there can, be, uh, there can be a pothole the size of a crater that can open up on a busy roadway. Now, for me, a long time ago, I stopped putting lids, you know, those little plastic lids with the little, they, they look like a sippy cup for infirmed people. <laughs> and they have the little cut over and, and inevitably, I spill on myself. So what I've been doing for a few years now is is. I'll just get it down from the top a little bit and I'll take the lid off and I'll just leave it in my cup holder. And uh, then I'm just sailing along, uh, daydreaming likely, maybe thinking about what I have to do that day or, or please God, perhaps even 
um, in an attitude of worship, praising the Lord. And I'll hit one of these uh, aforetime mentioned potholes and coffee will go everywhere. Now, did the pothole put the coffee in the cup? No, no. The pothole simply revealed what was there. Agreed? And so that's what the Lord does in our lives. As we're driving down uh, the road of life, uh, we can encounter some bumpy terrain, one full of disappointments. And if we don't deal with those things properly, they can become the root of bitterness. Broken promises, broken dreams, broken relationships, broken hearts. We've all experienced those things to one degree or another. Perhaps it was, you're thinking, you know, I thought this was the relationship breakthrough that was going to fill that void in my life. Or this was the job opportunity that I had been waiting for because it was going to be the job opportunity that was going to solve all my financial problems. Or maybe it was, this is going to be the surefire approach with my children. This is what it is that's going to open the communication lines uh, between us and them. This is going to be what will solve the discipline problems. This is what's going to bring peace and harmony to our home, etc. And the list goes on and on and on. And all is going along well enough until sadly and sometimes very suddenly and without warning, things are not working out as we had planned or hoped. And at times like that, if we're not careful and we don't deal with those things quickly and biblically, this is why Ephesians 4, uh, 4.26 says, Be angry and sin not. Don't let the sun go down upon your anger. And it's not just dealing with anger alone. Anger is mentioned. But when we fail to deal with any issue in our lives properly and biblically in a timely manner. The next verse says, and and don't give place to the devil. When we fail to deal with any issue in our life properly and biblically, not only do we affect our relationship on on the vertical between ourselves and the Lord, but we open uh, the door, a crack, and we give the devil an opportunity to turn our hearts into his workshop. So we we need to beware. And as I mentioned earlier, these are the opportunities that the Lord will give to us to reveal to us what's in our hearts revealing what's in our hearts by what it is that comes out of our mouths at times like that i don't know about you i can only speak for me but there have been times in my life where i have i have said something just quickly reacting to a situation I've said something and then you're trying to catch those words and bring them back and it's impossible to do. And and then they're out there and you say, where did that come from? It came from your heart, mister. For out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says, does the mouth speak? Matthew 12, 34. So again, it's not the circumstance itself. It's not the situation itself. It's not the event itself that causes the bitterness. The bitterness is already present. 
It's those events, those, those Mara events that the Lord allows in our lives, that he sends our way to prove us in order to reveal to us what it is that's in our hearts. Now, you think about the process of, of proving a precious metal. Uh, several years ago, I was uh, doing a footsteps of Paul tour, and uh, we had spent uh, about a week in, in Turkey, in Asia Minor, and we had visited several historic and biblical sites, and we completed our trip there by crossing the Bosphorus, Bosphorus Strait, and we ended up, we had a couple of days in Istanbul. And one of our days in Istanbul, I went into the Grand Bazaar. Now, the Grand Bazaar has uh, a documented history of, of operation that dates back thousands of years. It's believed to be the oldest continually operating market in the world. And so when you go into the place, uh, you know, closer to the entrances are, just like you'd find here in America, those are people that are paying more freight for their little shop space, which are very primitive. I mean, it, it, it looks, I don't know, can it, did any of you ever experience swap meets when you were younger? Now, when I was younger, living in Southern California, the swap meets were always at the drive-in theater. And so people would take the, the, um, the equivalent of, of a little space for your car, and that would become their sales space. And, and, and if they were peddling a lot of wares, maybe they'd take two spaces. But the places were just sort of uh, very informally uh, identified, and you just move from spot to spot, and you, you would just survey their wares, and that was that. Well, it was, it was like that in, in Istanbul. But I, what I did is I went way deep. I went way deep into the market and I came upon this man, this old man, who was in the process of refining some precious metal. And I I had heard about this in the past, but I thought, you know, I'm going to watch this process. And there he sat, his face looked like leather. It was so weathered. And he sat down and he had this this, uh, cup uh, on a long handle and he had a primitive mitt on his hand and he would slide that thing into the fire. He had a foot bellows. He was sitting on a small stool and he'd just pump a little air uh, there via the bellows and he'd stoke the fire and the fire would get hotter and he'd draw it off. And then with each time he'd draw it away, he'd skim off more dross, more impurities that the heat would bring to the surface. And this process would continue until, and you likely know this, you likely know this, but I'll just say it again, until the refiner is able to see his reflection in that precious metal. That's when he knows that the refining process is finished and he immediately will remove it from the fire. And so the Lord does the same sort of thing in our lives. And he allows us to, uh, to experience uh, fiery trials, and, and he puts us in the heat, so to speak. And he does so, so that the impurities in our lives can come to the surface and be identified. And of course, he, he skims them away, just like the refiner would, would skim away the dross and repeat the process until he could see his reflection. And, and uh, in the end, what he had was something far more valuable 
uh, far more precious, far more pure than when he began. And, and so the Bible tells us, Romans eight twenty eight. we know that, that God has worked all things or is working all things together for the good of them that love him. They who are the called according to his purpose. But the next verse is part of that thought. You should never quote Romans 8.28 without also including Romans 8.29 because that's what makes the thought complete. For whom he did foreknow, them also did he predestine to become conformed to the image of his son. So if anyone ever asks you, hey, what is it that God's doing in your life? We have an answer for them. I often ask people, what's God doing in your life? Oh, you know, I'm really not sure, man. Well, you should be sure because here's what he's doing in our lives as believers. He's molding and shaping and sculpting and crafting our lives more and more and more into the image of Jesus. For whom he did foreknow them also did he predestine to become conformed to the image of his son. Philippians 1.6 is making reference to this very thing when Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to perfect it or to continue it until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day that you stand in the presence of the Lord. Now, just a few weeks back, I uh, was in attendance uh, at, at a memorial service for a young man that had grown up in the church that I had pastored for 25 years. And uh, this young man, fine young man, just a great kid, and always a great kid. And uh, he was a fifth-year senior at Virginia Tech. He, he was uh, ROTC, and uh, he had just, weeks before, um, he had gotten engaged, and so he was just three weeks from graduation, just three weeks uh, from getting married, and uh, three weeks from his commission into the United States Army. And on a Friday evening, while he was working out, he had a heart attack and he died. One of the young men that shared at his memorial, uh, a young man that had known him since middle school days, they had met in a homeschool group, uh, he, he said that they, they, they both went to Virginia Tech, but they both had different majors. And so uh, he said that uh, they, they wouldn't often see themselves on campus, so they made it a point. They kind of covenanted with each other. And every Friday afternoon, they had lunch together, and they caught up on what the Lord was doing in each other's lives. Every Friday they did this. And so earlier that afternoon, they had had lunch together. And when he got the word, he just was devastated. And so he went out for a run, and, and he, was, he was frustrated with God. He couldn't believe it. Lord, why, 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 Joe, why not me? Why not me, Lord? He's got, he, had, he had so much going for him, and, and he was being used by you so effectively. In that verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul, at the end of his life, says, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. There is therefore laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord God shall give unto me that day, and not unto me only, but also to all of them who will love his appearing. So that verse came into his head, and he's thinking through it as he's jogging along, and he said it was as if the Lord spoke to him, and he stopped abruptly to listen. And the Lord said to him, Joe didn't, Joe didn't quit the race. He finished the race. At 23 years old, he finished the race. Hey, you know what? I didn't know Christina Grimmie. Uh, I knew Joe DeWitt. 
I knew the kind of life he'd lived. And I knew from the time he was a young man, uh, he lived for the glory of God. And he served others. That's just who he was. But you know what? For Christina Grimmie, despite the circumstances of her untimely demise and the violent nature of it, Psalm 103 or 139 tells us that her days were already recorded in God's book. And you know what? She finished her race. She finished her race. None of us has the assurance of tomorrow. None of us. We could die of a sudden heart attack. We could die in an accident. I mean, if, if I would have been a split second behind where I was and that deer would have gotten in front of me, I had no, no chance at all to stop. That, that thing possibly would have come right through the windshield and taken me to heaven, which would have been good news for me. I wouldn't have known what hit me. Why it is that my side airbags didn't employ, I don't know. Why it is that all the glass on that side of my car didn't just explode into the car, I don't know. Except, I'll tell you this, my guardian angel, is he's more wounded than I am. He's more wounded than I am. It was like slow-mo. When, when this thing hit me, I slammed against the, uh, the, the, the driver's door. And, and then it was like slow-mo. Just as, as I saw my mirror get sheared off, I went eye to eye with this deer right here. It bent my door. I had to kick it open. I couldn't kick open the back one. There was deer blood and deer dung all over the side. Well, you didn't need to know that, but... <laughs> Out of the abundance of a man's heart, does he speak? (laughs) You know, I could have finished my race, but but the reason that he didn't come through the window is because my race isn't over yet. Neither yours. Back to the point. God will allow difficulty, trials, troubles, headaches, heartbreaks into our lives in order to to mold and to shape us more and more and more into the image of his son in the process and when we get back to our story here we find that it's the lord is using this to reveal the true condition of the people's hearts and and he doesn't just reveal the problem but as it is always with the lord always with the lord When he identifies the malady, he also identifies the remedy. And you'll notice here, verse 23, They came to Marah, they couldn't drink of the waters, for they were bitter. They called it Marah. The people murmured against Moses. What shall we drink? Moses cries to the Lord, notice, and the Lord showed him a tree. He didn't send Moses looking for a tree. He didn't tell Moses to plant a tree. He, he directed Moses to a tree that was already there. And, and in that, we see, we see the, the marvelous work of God's providence. This is, this is another aspect of prevenient grace. God going before them going before the situation and making provision. 
Remember, God sees what you don't see. He knows what you don't know. And he knew they would come to Mara. And, and when they get to Mara and they cry out, exposing, revealing their bitterness, then the Lord shows the remedy for their malady, which is already present. And, and he tells Moses, take the tree, cast it into the waters. And the moment he cast the tree into the waters, what happened? The bitter waters were made sweet. It's such a beautiful picture, communicating a beautiful truth. Declaring to us that in our bitter situations, the bitter can be made sweet when we do as Moses did and we add the tree. And for us as Christians, we sang about it this morning. What is the tree? What is the tree for us? What does the tree represent? It represents the finished work of the cross. In Galatians chapter 3, we're told of Jesus being Hanged on a tree. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're, we're told of Jesus being crucified on a tree. It's the finished work of the cross that's presented to us here in type. And it alone can make the bitter sweet. 1 Peter 2.24 declares that he himself bore our sins in his own body upon the tree that we, once being dead to in sin, would be made alive unto righteousness. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Quickened, made alive. You were dead. Spiritually dead. But the moment you came into an encounter with the living God, and by faith in Jesus Christ, in the same way that these people, just days before, had taken the blood of an innocent substitute, and by faith, and in obedience to the directive of God, spoken to them through Moses, they took the blood of that innocent substitute, the blood of an innocent lamb, and they applied it to their doorpost, uh, to the doorpost and to the lintel. Of their dwelling, so that when God saw the blood of the innocent sacrifice applied by faith, judgment passed over that house. And that was the Lamb of God. Or in, in type, it was pointing forward to the Lamb of God. There in, in, in Leviticus chapter 23, it starts out as, uh, as a Lamb of God, and then it becomes the Lamb of God, and then it becomes your Lamb of God, your Lamb. It becomes personal. And when John the Baptist first saw Jesus at, at the very beginning of, of his public ministry, as he was emerging from obscurity uh, to be baptized by John, John seeing him, behold, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. This is the one I've told you about, the one that is preferred before me, the one, the latchet of whose sandals I am not worthy to unloose. That's a, that's a reference to the kinsman redeemer, the Goel. If, if you were in a position to redeem something, uh, a piece of property under the old covenant, but for reasons that could be numerous, you couldn't do it, then you were to take your shoe off and hand it to another. And then they'd spit in the shoe and put it back on your feet. And... But, but 
John says of Jesus, the latchet of whose sandal I'm not worthy to unloose. In other words, he's come to do what the law, what I represent, what the law was powerless to do. He's the one that's come to make the bitter sweet. Now, now make it personal here. Imagine someone's been critical of you. Someone is, has been coming down on you. Someone's been mad at you. Someone's misunderstood you. Maybe someone's been talking about you to other people behind your back, spreading gossip, sowing discord, speaking evil. What tends to happen? Don't sit there in your smugness and say, oh, well, I just forgive him. Praise God. No, what happens at times like that is, is we, we tend to become embittered toward that person or those people involved. And we want to cry out to God against them. Lord, get them. Get them in Jesus' name. Get them. Here's the interesting thing. When we, when we are the offendor instead of the offendee, as the offendor, we're the one who cries for the mercy tree, right? That we sang about this morning. We're the one who cries out, oh God, oh God, oh God, have mercy upon me, like David does in Psalm 51. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out mine iniquity. Oh, but let someone, let someone violate our little space. And, and the tables are turned. And we're not so quick to say, oh, praise the Lord, it's old. All right, Lord, I'm going to forgive them, but first. No, this is why in Romans 12 it says, as much as it depends upon you, Romans 12, 18, you live peaceably with all men, dearly beloved. Avenge not yourselves. Don't take matters into your own hands. But give place unto God, for it is written, Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Therefore. Therefore what? Therefore what? Am I supposed to just do nothing? No, you want to do something about that? Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Don't be overcome with evil, nor, nor repay uh, uh, evil with evil, but rather you overcome evil with good. And he goes on to say, for in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire upon their head. That doesn't mean you'll burn them. It means you'll bless them. Because <laughs> in, in that culture, if your fire went out, you would typically go to your neighbor. And you'd, you'd have this contraption that you'd wear on your head. On the top of it was a brass sensor. And you'd go to your neighbor and they'd give you some coals, which you would put in this brass sensor. And then you'd hurry home and, and you'd, use, you'd use the heat from their coals to get your fire going again. It's a blessing. And if you read it in the Living Bible, it says that, that by so doing, by blessing them, you'll, you'll shame them. And they'll be ashamed of what they've done to you. That, that's the idea. We get in that situation where, where we have been the object of, of someone's hostility or someone's lies. And, and we, we find ourselves saying, Lord, this isn't right. Lord, this isn't fair. Yeah, guess what? Life isn't fair. People are weird. But God is love. And we cry out, Lord, bring justice to the situation. Lord, deal with them. Lord, make them pay for what they've said to me or what, what they've, they've said about me. Lord, make them pay for what they've done. 
And at times like that, it's the Lord by the Spirit who will often whisper to our hearts, there's already been justice. That situation has been dealt with. The price has been paid. I've nailed it to the cross. It tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that he took the handwriting of ordinances that was contrary to us. And he triumphed over it. He said it was nailed. It was nailed to the cross. You know, and at that time and in that culture, a person, when they were guilty of a capital crime, their crime was written and it was then nailed to their cross so that everyone could see for that which they were dying. If, if they were going to be incarcerated for a period of time, they'd write out uh, what the offenses were and they'd nail it to their s- cell door. And then when the time came that they had satisfied their sentence, then was written to Telstai. Paid in full. It is finished. And it was rolled up and given to them. That was their emancipation. And Jesus took those things about you and me. Those things that made us guilty before him. And he nailed them to the cross. And what are the last words that he uttered before he released his spirit? To Telstai. It is finished. Paid in full. Debt canceled. You know, we often ignore ignore the still, small voice of the Lord and we fail to add the tree. We fail to consider the implications of the cross. And as a result, then we fail to make the bitter sweet in our own lives. On the other hand, when we add the tree, when we consider the cross, when we discover the, the relief and the release that's associated with, with choosing To see that person or that situation through the finished work of the cross. We miss what God has available to us. Because the Lord would say to you this morning, listen, no matter the circumstance or the situation, no matter the people or the persons involved, I have dealt with that personally. I took that specifically. I paid the price completely by nailing it to the cross. And what that means is you and I, because of the finished work of the cross, you and I, we can embrace that person. We can be tolerant of those people. We can love those individuals regardless, regardless because justice was done. Almost 2,000 years ago. Think of the words of the Apostle Paul as he's writing to his friend Philemon about the runaway slave Onesimus. Now, we don't know much about Onesimus except to know that Onesimus found himself imprisoned adjacent to the Apostle Paul. And we don't know how long it was, but it was long enough for Onesimus to prove profitable to Paul in his imprisonment and in his suffering. Because when he writes to Philemon, Philemon, he identifies that Onesimus is now a brother in Christ and and that he's become very profitable to him in ministry. But you need to know that for Onesimus 
to be where he was and to disclose to Paul what actually happened, he was likely guilty of a capital crime. And to go back to his master would mean certain death. So what does Paul do? He writes a handwritten letter that he puts in the place of Onesimus. And he says, you take this back to Philemon. And, and then when, when you read it, the line in it in particular says, if he has wronged you in any way, or if he owes you anything, you charge that to my account, Paul says to Philemon. And in that, Paul becomes a perfect type of Jesus, right? Because for you and I, when we, in our sin, in our dysfunction, in our imperfection, when we find ourselves in the presence of the Lord because the accuser of the brethren has brought us up again before the throne of God, um, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who immediately stands and says, I object for that one, that one he she, they, they are under the blood. They are one of mine. And therefore, Father, uh, if they've done you any wrong, if they owe you anything, charge that to my account. And as a result, you and I, we stand in the presence of God completely, perfectly Faultless, not merely blameless, but faultless, without spot, without blemish, because we stand before the Father in the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you see, every time we come to the communion table, we come to remember just that. Now, it's true that the only thing that should keep you from taking of the communion elements this morning is that you have never yet, first of all, come as a sinner, recognizing your need for a Savior, realizing that you can't save yourself, and then realizing that Jesus is that Savior. He is God's provision, God's remedy for your malady of sin. If you've never come, you have a terminal illness and and the consequence of that you'll pay for eternity separated from god but because there was no other way that any of us could come as a result of our own human merit because all of our righteousness the sum total of a life's worth of our good deeds is but a soiled garment when standing next to the perfection of jesus and therefore uh, Because we all owed a debt we couldn't pay. God sent his son to pay a debt that he, Jesus, didn't owe. Rich.